Hi everyone, I'm Riley Blanks, your hostess and the creator of Woke Beauty, a storytelling platform reimagining the everyday act of self-celebration for and by all women. This show brings you unfiltered conversations with a dynamic myriad of female visionaries who have developed personal success despite trauma and hardship by leaning into grit and discernment. We explore the messy interwoven realities of mental health, holistic wellness, intricate family dynamics, racial complexity, and the exceptional discoveries that lead to fulfillment. This is our pledge to the power of resilience and the impact of perspective. With our current state of affairs and the uproar following George Floyd's murder, this interview with Jane Hervey feels especially significant. I've spoken out a lot on how problematic it is to only advocate for black lives when it feels emotional, charged, or trendy. I've challenged white folks to consider doing this work continuously, not just now, but tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. Because it seems for many that they've just discovered fire, but we've been ablaze for centuries. It might feel time-consuming and overwhelming to begin to craft your own anti-racist toolbox and unlearn privilege— Well, that's because it is. Learning how to be anti-racist is not some overnight project. It's a lifestyle change, one that actively meets you exactly where you are in life, and then it calls you to disrupt. Jane Hervey has been on that path for many years. This interview is a testament to her commitment. It was recorded a little over a year ago and therefore serves as a sort of reminiscence But more poignantly, it serves as an example of a leader who shows us time and again what the anti-racist work actually looks like. Jane Hervey is a creative director, nonprofit leader, and artist based in Austin, Texas. She is the founding director of Boss Babes ATX, a nonprofit amplifying women and non-binary creatives, entrepreneurs, and leaders. And she has spent her last three years there actively imagining the world she'd like to live in. Outside her work at the nonprofit, she runs her own boutique design and branding studio, Group Work, and produces music. Since putting out her first four-track EP, Sour Grapefruit, in 2019, she has played South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, and opened for the likes of Ocean, Nomi Ruiz, Bunny Michael, and more. Her work has also been profiled in publications like Texas Monthly and Forbes. You can learn more and listen at janeclairhervey.com. And now, with no further delay, Jane Hervey. Hi, Jane. Hi, Riley. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm so excited to be with you, and I just love how full circle it is. Yeah! Um, Just like how I met you, and you were so generous to bring me in back at that Boss Babes event. Which was not the first time I met you, I think so. Yeah, which I think is like an interesting thing because like a lot of people that I meet is like through the context of that work, and then we never actually get to like sit down and talk. And it's like, it's like, oh, I really, really liked like (laughs) I really liked your approach, or I really liked you know whatever you're whatever you're up to, or the ethics and values that you uphold. And so it's like super cool to be able to kind of sit down with you two years from that and be like, damn, like that yeah. was, yeah. Yeah. I don't We've know. extended. Yeah. We've evolved. 
we're friends now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's and just great, be like, I've been yeah. watching you from afar. And um, I don't know. You get to know people kind of in that way where yeah. it's not necessarily intimate, but I don't know. It's a cool, it's a cool full circle for sure. Yeah. Well, I want to spend a little time on Boss Babes, um, very little time on Boss Babes because I'm, I want to know about you. And I mean, Boss Babes is like an extension of you. I see it as like a small facet, even though it's grown so big. Um, but yeah, you are, I feel like all encompassing. So I want to give a little context and dive into, um, sort of like just a a mini journey, you know, of, Mm -hmm. of boss babes. And then I want to like set it aside. You know, like, screw you, boss. And talk, <laughs> or just talk personal stuff and yeah. individual stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess I want to first talk about your pool parties because I'm really excited and I can't wait to come. Hopefully I'll come in May. Um, I want to talk about where that idea came from, what it looks like, how it's working out, and why. Yeah. Well, so... Um, the residency series is part of Boss's ATX. I think it kind of gives where our pool parties are at this summer. It's almost like an indication of the growth of the organization and how everyone who's been working on the project has been able to kind of find their own individuality within it. So Boss's ATX started as a grassroots meetup series in 2015. I launched the project, hired some friends, um, we went through like two years of really crazy growth and kind of like an unsustainable, un you know, unstable type of like roller coaster ride as the project grew really quickly and the vision of it also grew um, in response to community feedback. And so I think, you know, ever since 2015, I've been really questioning what does building cultures and communities that value that value financially, socially, and culturally the contributions that women and LGBTQ plus folks make in society, Mm -hmm. whether that's artistic contributions, creative contributions, economic contributions. Um, I think it's something for me, just where I come from in Texas, uh, it's, it's just, you don't see that ever being told to you, right? Um, no one tells you explicitly that like that they hate women or that women are not valued or that there's a problem with whiteness, right, in Texas, but you feel it and you see it. Um, so, you know, I've been personally within my own work as a creative producer trying to answer that question. And Boss ATX was part of that and it's resonated with a lot of people. So as we've grown, our pro- our programs have become more complex and we've got, you know, Babes Fest, this festival, we've got our meetup series, we have Crafter Market, um, our, which promotes so many different business owners. We have all these different things. And I sat down last year and I was looking at all the commissions that we made in our programs and all the times we hired DJs. And I started to go through all of the numbers. And it occurred to me for the first time ever that not only was this thing no longer this project an extension of me, it had become a reflection of so many different people, right? And their contributions and, and what they were, you know, trying to do. So with our residency and this pool party series this summer, um, we realized there were, or I realized last year, there were a lot of stories 
um, that were not being told internally about the people that we worked with. So it's like we had all these amazing programs coming out that highlighted all these awesome people. But like, who are the people behind the scenes that we hire as DJs who are doing these art commissions for these different programs, um, who are part of our curatorial team? Um, and so with the residency at Zochi Solis is the lead curator. She's been on our committee for two years. She's now on our board. Um, we sat down and we're like, how do we tell these artists' stories? These 14 artists that uh, we've worked, we work with every year. We've been doing this since 2016. It was like, how do we get the community to understand that like our events don't happen in a vacuum? Our programs don't happen in a vacuum. It's super collaborative. Um, and that's that's where this pool party series came out of is it's like let's literally once a month get together in the summer sun leading up to our festival in September and really celebrate these artists that we work with on a regular basis who are being offered, you know, commissions and projects and all sorts of things. And then I think for Zochi and myself, um, the pool party aspect was really uh, important. One, we wanted a good home for this this little series that wasn't going to require a lot of effort on our part, because with these artists that are in this residency series, this pool party series, uh, this, you know, once monthly thing, um, we're already working with them on so many projects. So we were like, this party has to be simple. It has to be fun for everyone. And we also want people to feel really comfortable and celebrated. And so Zochi and I are both, you know, size 14 babes. And um, I'm like going on size 16. And I think like it was like, how do we create a space where everyone feels celebrated um, and can kind of like see these artists in a context that is cool and exciting, mm -hmm. um, but also inviting, right. And inclusive, which sometimes those things don't always mesh up. So I really feel like we've done that with the pool party. It's not about me. It's not about Zochi. It's not about boss babes. It's about the artists that we work with all throughout the year. We're like finally telling that story about our collaborators. Um, so it's just really exciting. Cause I kind of just get to be a person within it. Like, it's like, I don't, I'm not having to curate anything, you know, like Zochi was the lead curator. I put a couple artists forward. Um, but yeah, you know, we're going to be at the pool once a month for the next six months or five months now. Cause we just had the first one and it leads all the way up to our big festival babes fest. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's cool to be able to like dance in a bathing suit. Yeah. Um, and so how it's inclusive, it's inviting. Yeah. And you wanted that to happen. How did you make that happen? What, yeah. What did that involve? Or is it is it abstract? Is it hard to explain? No, I think it's a lot of experimentation and failure, you know? Um like a lot of a lot of the things that we do at the organization today or even just how I collaborate with others now. Um I've learned a lot through like failed collaborations or making really big mistakes accidentally and not realizing it was even a mistake. So like, for example, when we first launched this, um, this residency series, it didn't really have a launch. Um, it actually started in 2016. We started featuring different artists and just calling them like our monthly resident artists. Mm. Right. But there was like no system in place. Um, and oftentimes like there would be months where like no one got like selected or featured. And that was just because like the project was not prioritized like by our team and, and things like that. So, you know, sitting down last year and being like, okay, I'm an artist. 
I know how I like to be recognized. I know how I want people to see me. How do we make a space where people can be seen in the ways that they want to be seen? What kind of communication does that require? Um, who needs to curate this? And I think like Zochi, um, is the perfect curator. So I think that's also why the series is so cool and so awesome. Um, we strategically selected artists um, within our network that come from different, like different communities we're aware of. And the whole purpose there, right, is that you'll be around people you've never really been around before. So everyone has to be vulnerable mm -hmm. and there is no like context. And so the artists within the series are also like going out and supporting each other and learning about new things. And I think that makes like an organic, inclusive experience and then just on internally right um and then I think externally like making making it an inclusive experience is always difficult right it's like okay if we're going to say that this is a pool party like I'm like I need to show up in a bathing suit and really like flex my cellulite and be like yo <laughs> like I'm out here um and be vulnerable in that way um we need to, you know, as a team, we need to like be excited and enthusiastic about this. So it's like, how do we like, how do we want that space to be like, so we can show up. So I think just having those conversations, um, with my staff and then also with, um, with our board overall about what does this thing look like? And that's like where Zochi's leadership has come into play. It's been something she's been working with me on since I think we first started talking about it like October of last year. So it's cool to see all of that hard work pay off. Like this is like months of like pushing forward. Zochi did 14 studio visits. She met with every single artist like leading up to our launch. Like we had a meeting with all of the artists involved in the series. We're doing quarterly meetups and going on museum tours and just showing up in that committed way of being like, this isn't just about a single event. This is about a community of people. We're telling that story. We're making sure it's clear. Like, I think inclusivity is not a destination, um, but it's just cool to see it play out in a way where people really feel seen and yeah. it's not about me. It's not about the org, you know? Yeah, it's absolutely. Cool. And so boss babes feels like it's deeply personal to you. I know we, we say it's an extension, but it's a personal extension. And I would think that that is exhausting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's so much exhausting as it is like I've really had to learn how to set boundaries with the work and how to um, be honest about the kind of work that it requires mm -hmm. and be honest with myself and with others about it. So like I mentioned at the beginning of this, like the way the residency came to be and the series came to be this year it was a lot of trial and error and learning from that and being like, Oh, if I, if I want, like, if I want other people to work on this, we need to start six months in advance. Like that is the kind of timeline this requires. You don't know that when you first start working on projects. So when you're, you know, a, an emerging business owner or an emerging community leader, or even an emerging artist that is trying to work with others, you don't know those things in the beginning. You don't know how to like set timelines and to, um, work, design communication, um, systems, you know, you're, you're figuring those things out. And so I think with, with bosses ATX, you know, it was such a personal thing for me. Um, I was working at a startup when I first started the interview series that like kind of launched the meetup and I was facing 
a lot of trauma within my work in the startup scene and didn't have language for what was going on, but just knew continually that like, (laughs) that every single time I was running up against, um, some sort of barrier in my work as a media producer and um, as an artist, I was a, I was still working on my music while I was doing this like media startup thing. That oftentimes those barriers were characterized by like ego, are characterized by like maleness, right, mm-hmm. um, and like toxic masculinity. Um, and I think on a personal level, I realized that year. And I'm still realizing every day that I was socialized growing up to really devalue myself and to make myself small um, and to feel guilty and ashamed of wanting to dream big. And I've been writing music since I was seven. I've been in so many different theater programs and traveling choirs. And I joined a country band when I was in high school and like traveled and toured Um And I got made fun of a lot for that growing up. And then beyond that, um, I had multiple abusive relationships until I was 23 because I genuinely was told growing up that, um, that men were right in all capacities. And so for me, it's, it's such a personal project because what I see myself fighting in this and what I see myself trying to say with our programs and trying to show other people that they can also say these things too, is that no matter where you've come from, no matter how your community works, no matter what your culture is, you deserve to be treated with respect. You deserve to be able to tell your truth. You deserve to live a life that is safe, that is um, sustainable. And um, all of those things are privileges. And it's not, it's not fair to not talk about those things as privileges, um, So yeah, it's deeply, deeply personal. Um, A lot of it is motivated by a lot of the pain I faced growing up in the small town that I grew up in a place that I really, really loved and I still love deeply, but um, is characterized by sexism, is characterized by colorism, is characterized by, you know, um, homophobia Mm -hmm. and... um, religious oppression. Um, and it's hard to look at something you love and say those things and know that they're true. So I think that's like why it's personal for me is that I'm trying to create a space and I've been trying to create a space with other people where we can be honest about those things, but not live in that pain. Mm -hmm. Because if you just live in that pain, it, it is, it's continually, it's a traumatizing cycle, right? So, you know, whether it's our festivals or our markets or this residency series, I'm like, if we're going to push culture forward, like this needs to feel fun. This needs to feel joyful. It needs to feel like we're doing something. Um, and it, and we need to build models that people can replicate. So like our process needs to be, it needs to be written, we need to document this time. We need to do our research. We have to hold each other accountable. Like all of those things are very deeply personal for me, but 
you know, I'm a producer at the end of the day. I'm an artist at the end of the day. And I think what motivates me to pursue this project and to have even started this project is that I've recognized that these things are barriers in my work. And that if they're barriers in my work as a white woman from a middle class background, they are definitely barriers in for people who have different identities and, and sit at different intersections, whether yeah. that's racial or um, ability wise or any number of things. And so yeah, I think it's just like being honest about the the barriers and and wanting to create places where those don't exist at the same magnitude. Mm-hmm. So it's just really it's it is it's really personal for me. Do you feel like you've um, healed by way of boss babes in a way? Like, I mean, because I imagine that the first meetup or the first event, there weren't. 500 people there there was there were at the very first one the very that's I think that's why this how process did you do is, that <laughs> yeah I so there wasn't 500 there was there was about 250 people that came out but we had um we had 900 people RSVP wow and I think that was so scary. were you just like a hot shot at UT and, you know? no I mean <laughs> if you look at it this way like the project started out a series out of a series of interviews I was doing when I was in school at UT and um I was it actually had nothing to do with gender. I was doing a series of interviews about festival culture and I was I was talking to different artists that I had met in festival culture and like producers and like people working in PR and things like that. And I was trying to um, create like, it was part of my like honors program. I had to like design my own course, but basically I was trying to prove that like by simply telling, this is in 2014 by the way, by simply telling more stories about about people who are not being covered in media and whose stories are not being told that you can actually like change their value. Like I was trying to prove that, that like there is a journalistic responsibility to create that, that basically by the stories we tell, we're creating brands. Like that was my whole argument is that like, um, we're responsible for the coverage that we tell and that that creates a culture around different things. And so, I was doing that with like festival work and what was happening is I, every time I was interviewing someone, they'd be like, well, um, they'd be like, well, I, I don't really see myself in stories of success around my industry. And then, um, I started recognizing this pattern is like, I was like, oh, every single woman I have interviewed feels this way. And I was like, I am not crazy. No matter how many times my like male counterparts tell me that like, that's just how this works. Like, I am not crazy for thinking it could change, right? So it started out of that, and um, I started publishing, once I left school, the interviews to the boss babe. Like, I created, like, okay, boss is ATX, and I, like, told all these Austin stories, and we ha- and I started gathering more stories and featuring people on it. And then I was like, we should just all meet up, like, everybody who's on this thing. And that's actually how I met um, some of the people who first worked on the project. So, like, I had featured, like, Leslie Lozano. We had been friends for a really long time, but I'd, like, featured her in this, like, thing. And then, like, Ashley Pryor, who was also, like, part of the original team, like, featured her on this this thing so it's like this meetup had a very organic start it was like a conversation that had been going on for like a year you know got it yeah so yeah that's why 200 people showed up but I think that that was so overwhelming like this very personal thing was suddenly being dissected and and moving virally Mm -hmm. through different communities so I went from having like a private life with all of these thoughts and desires and creating this little project to receiving thousands of emails a week Mm. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, from the outside to many, that feels glamorous and exciting. 
Um, but when you're on the inside, it's overwhelming and anxiety inducing, right? Yeah. So, okay. So let's, let's move forward. Um, first I want, I'm, I'm going backwards, but mm-hmm. you said that you flexed your cellulite and I was like, <laughs> I made like a mental note. Cause I love, I love that phrase. It's just clever. But, um, I also love that you don't just exude confidence. It appears to me that you embody it. And I think that there's something really, because I feel like authentic is ever used now, but there's something actually very deeply authentic about that because um, so so many exude it and it's like ego, mm-hmm. whereas when you embody it, it's like it's soulful, you know? Yeah. And so if someone's struggling with that, um, how would you how would you teach them? What, what advice would you give them? How do you embody confidence, especially when so many in society are telling you not to? Well, I think I think we have to remind ourselves every single day that we deserve we deserve our amendment rights, right? Like not to get constitutional, but like we deserve the right to speak. We deserve the right to tell other people how we feel and not be not be um penalized for mm-hmm. that we deserve the right to live in our bodies and we deserve the right to exist like on the basis of, of us being born we deserve the right to exist in the way that we were created i believe that fully and um i don't i think that that is a fundamental human right like we deserve the right to exist and i think that when your existence in your human body is challenged by others it can be very hard to be confident um i have to remind myself that every day though that even when people are trying to like erase even when i feel because none of us intentionally try to erase each other in those ways or or minimize like we're still fighting for space we're fighting to survive as human beings and there is always competition within a species even in the most well-intentioned civilized societies and i have to remind myself of that that like i have to step into my power each day i have to confidently own my mistakes i have to own my past i have to own my transgressions but i also have to own my i have to own my rights and so you know as far as like flexing my cellulite goes um i and i've had these conversations with my family so i'm like comfortable sharing this but like i was the only like heavy person in my family um that was like born heavy so like I, I never, I was, when I was five years old, I was like 90 pounds or something. Like I was like very, very heavy as a child and, um, that not 90 pounds. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. It, I was obese for a five-year-old. I don't okay. even know what that would be, but I'm like, I can't even like think about that. I don't know. But, um, I had so many people telling me from a very young age that my body was wrong, that I had like, that like. I was responsible for being born that way, that I was like responsible for fixing those things. And, um, you know, when I, when I moved away from the Valley and realized that I did not have to be skinny, I just kind of started questioning every single thing about my life and realized, which I think it's scary to realize this. And we realize it every single day. Like we don't ever stop learning, 
but um, realizing that I was like negating some of my own experiences because I had so many people telling me that I was wrong, right? Um, about a fundamental truth, which is just like, this is how I exist. Yeah. Like I have cellulite. Like I'm not going to spend all of my energy trying to be skinny. So from a confidence standpoint, I just think we have to sit in that truth. Like um, when people tell us we're wrong, that is an opportunity to listen. That is an opportunity to accept feedback. But there are extremes to that that we cannot tolerate, right? Which is like when someone's telling you you're wrong for existing or like you're wrong for like (laughs) – you're wrong for having cellulite or like things that are out of your control. Um, you, you're wrong for not being born in the right place or space. You're wrong for not being, um, not being blonde, like any number of things. We have to recognize that for what it is, which, which is, um, it's, it's a, it's a form of oppression. Right. So I think that's just hard, like to sit and be like, I can either sit in this space and let this person tell me who I should be, or I can recognize that like, even if they're not malintentioned, that I have the ability to just say, Hey, I understand why you feel that way. Don't know where you're at with your growth or whatever, but I refuse to sit in that space anymore. And what's interesting about that, not to keep like going with this, but what's Sorry, interesting. I'm a mini oh, attack. it's so good. You know but where it's coming from. Yeah. But what's interesting about that is um, I've really owned my weight with my family, like just from that confidence side. And like my grandmother, who was really hard on me as a kid, called me the other day and was like, yeah, I've been thinking back on like the conversations that you and I had when you were growing up. And she was like, honestly, like you're really beautiful. And I'm sorry that I was always telling you, you weren't enough. And she's like, I think you like, obviously like I was always enough for her, but she was concerned about like my weight or my (coughs) appearance um, (coughs) and didn't realize how her actions were affecting my self-confidence. So I think it's just cool to like be able to, when you own your confidence, you also teach other people how to own theirs and like maybe see where they are, you know, putting something on you. That's not correct. Yeah. That's powerful. It's almost like you, you inspired her in a way to look at herself in the mirror and look at how she treated you and responded to you to the point where she could actually, take responsibility over yeah. the way that not just she spoke to you, but the way she thought about you. Yeah. And she could reverse that. And I feel like, especially as someone who's lived a lot of years, it's really hard to reverse. Yeah. Know? And she's so. 84. And that conversation was not prompted. It's literally just like by seeing me live my truth, she reframed me in her mind. And she literally told me, she said, I'm looking back on photos of you now. And you were so thin and beautiful. And I don't know why I said all those things to you. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't know why either, but, or, you know, I do. It's because of the socialization aspects. So like, I don't know. I think like they're being confident is being vulnerable. Um, It's allowing people to tell you you're wrong um, and accepting when you are. Um, But it also gives people an opportunity to see you the way you want to be seen. And so I think we just have to remind ourselves that that's, just important and and that we're not gonna be good at it every day right Um, are there any specific things you do like this is mentality this is what you embody 
what about like practices or rituals? Is there anything specific that you can speak to? Or is this, is this a lot of digesting and talking and journaling? Like, what does this involve? A lot of journaling. So like I, um, when I have a hard time making sense of like, um, cause I get a lot of negative feedback. I won't be dishonest. <laughs> like just with doing a project like boss saves ATX, people have a lot of feelings about it. And then in turn have a lot of feelings about me and like how I show up in the world. And so, you know, I get all sorts of stuff thrown my way. Um, whether it's a misunderstanding or I actually re- did something wrong, you know? So I think, um, I've had to engage in like a, journaling ritual to make sense of my thoughts and like ground myself because, um, when you are overloaded with a lot of negative information, um, you can start to see the world in a different way and see yourself in a different way and forget like the bigger context. So I journal when I receive negative feedback and I kind of audit it with like, well, excuse me, what's the story I'm telling about myself? What's the story this person is telling me about myself? Where, like, how can I, you know, approach this other side? Um, and then I think drawing those lines, right? So, like, I I do have my personal, I have boundaries where um, I've been in, as I said, I've been in abusive relationships. So, like, I have a rule that, like, and this is this rule might not work for everyone, but, like, I have a rule that like if someone is like harassing me and like sending me like text after text after text after text and it's like all negative and it's like barraging me with information like that, like that's an abuse tactic, right? So like that's that's feedback I don't consider maybe because it's it's an abusive form of delivery and even if there is real feedback in that um I know that it's a trigger, right? So like that's something that like I draw a very firm line there. I can't have a conversation like that. Um, so I think those kinds of things give you confidence, right? Is like knowing your boundaries and and being able to recognize like being able to recognize when you're wrong. Yeah. And and when and when it's not you. Yeah. Yeah. And um regarding the abuse, how did you recover from that? Because 20, so you're 25, yeah, right? Yeah. And I know you don't like talking about your age, but I mean, come on. <laughs> no, I, it's not that I don't like talking about it. I think it's like, I don't want don't anyone. to lead with it. Yeah, well, or I don't want anyone to like be like, well, if she's 25 and I'm 33, then like, where is my life? Like, I don't like uh, that kind of stuff because mm-hmm. uh, I just, I feel like we do that, you know? We are a pretty ageist society. Yeah. We love like the prodigy and yeah. yeah, all of that. And it's like, that's all like kind of stupid right and I think it's also like where someone might have a weird expectation of me because I'm so young and they're like wow you must be like a genius I'm like no like definitely not um I'm still in recovery and I I honestly think it's because the first two years after so I've had two abusive relationships that led to um, me not being able to one set boundaries and communicate my needs and then two like be able to enforce boundaries when someone I love or care about is continually crossing them like basically from those relationships I kind of just sat in a place of silence and like any blame that was placed on me any burden that was pa- placed on me just kind of took it on enthusiastically and so it's uh, my last abusive relationship ended in 2014 it was very abrupt um and like I don't want to trigger anyone but uh it was it was physical not just emotional and so um uh, 
you know, when I came forward to our friend circle and our mutual friends, I had a lot of people tell me that it, that they did not believe me because I was such a strong person and so smart. And how could someone so strong and so smart be abused? And I actually like believed that like for two years that like I was in a position of power. Therefore there's no, like I'm a powerful person. So there's no way that I could ever be abused. Like that doesn't make sense. Like, no, like you're right. Like I must've, I must've been responsible for that. I must've done stuff, but I think that's where the boundaries come into play. Um, and I do think that's how I got my confidence back over the last two years is realizing that like, there are like some hard bottom lines with, with the way you should be treated. Um, you cannot have, you, you should be able to bring feedback to someone with, without being completely ignored and silenced and, and suffering that kind of retaliation without being physically harmed as a result of like expressing how you feel. Um, and also w- without being like disbelieved and discredited continually when you bring stuff forward. Um, I think also like you have to be able to bring stuff forward. I've like learned that in the last two years is like, I have to, um, the only responsibility I have is to set, I have to set those boundaries and then enforce them. And like, I'm not saying that like, every, like if you get abused, it's your fault because you're not doing that. I just think I've realized that like, that is the way I can protect myself. So that's been my process of healing is like really learning how to do that and to protect myself and to cut things off before they get bad because abuse is a lot more normal than we think it is when we, um, when we are, being abused, we oftentimes really love the person who's abusing us. And uh, it's hard for us to see someone we love as like, as something that needs, you know, work and might not be like true or good for us. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that like, as part of my healing, I've had to recognize some of the like, defense mechanisms and uh, protective strategies I developed as a result of that trauma. So that's like all part of the process of healing, right? It's like, I, and I think that's like how I've been able to get my confidence back, which I lost. I'll say I completely lost, um, from 2015 to like, like mid 2017, because, um, I forgot how to speak my truth because I was receiving just so much information from so many different people, um, and was living in this place of like, well, well, it must be right. Anything anyone brings to my table must be right. And how incredible yeah. that you built this like empire in that space, right? I yeah. Mean- well, I actually think that a lot of business owners and a lot of community leaders start from a traumatic place. I think it's like a real thing. Like I I know that like that's kind of part of your story too. Yeah. And we have to be real about that, that like sometimes the things that we pursue um, and it's statistically very common for um, like non-male business owners, artists, like anyone who's like self-employed to start to start from a place of necessity. I have to do this thing because I have to solve this problem or I have to do this thing because I have to make it work and I have to make my life work better. And typically that's from a place of like trauma and pain. Yeah, that's really deep. It gives me goosebumps because yeah. I I definitely came from that place. I've not been comfortable to fully 
divulge what that experience was um and therefore I have like so much admiration for people who are comfortable so that Mm -hmm. was my next question how do you discern now that you have gone through these relationships that haven't served you that have gone so far as to be abusive um that have just like broken you down to the point where you had to build yourself up Mm -hmm. how do you move forward now like how do you know who's going to be good for you and who's not or is that a process and are you comfortable going through that process yeah well I think I think that first I've had to recognize that just because I'm experiencing conflict with someone does not mean that they are evil or abusive I cannot put them I cannot align them with with that pain. And that is very hard to do. Um, especially when you are actively trying to protect yourself from, from, um, when you're being vulnerable with someone and you're like actively trying to protect yourself. And, and I think that whether you're working on a business or you're putting art out into the world, um, if you're working on a project alone and then you are working with other people, you really have to be able to see the difference, right? You have to, because if not, then like any negative feedback anyone brings you, you discredit and you're cutting yourself off from taking the risk of actually hearing someone out and taking the risk of like seeing things more holistically because you're so scared of what could happen if you're vulnerable and you go into that space again. Um, Bell Hooks has this really awesome quote from an interview that she did with, um, oh my God, I can't blank on her name. Um, I'll probably remember like 15 minutes in, but I can add it to the notes later. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a piece on it when I was first starting to explore this stuff in mid 2017. Um, but she, she calls it being in a brave space that like, if we can't be in a brave space and take the risk of not being safe um, with people that we're working with and the people and with people that we love. Like if we can't do that, um, then we're, we are cutting ourselves off from things. Um, She also like couples that with like, she understands why people don't do that because like we have all been burned and hurt and scarred by other people. That is the truth of humanity. We do not talk about it all of the time because it's very scary to admit. It also opens us up for self-reflection and sitting down and being like, what are the things that I'm doing that are informed by pain, that are informed by trauma, um, that I'm saying that are that I'm right and that I'm correct in this or that this is just the way it has to go? Um, it opens us up to uncertainty, right? But yeah, I took a lot of inspiration from that bell hooks. It's literally like one quote in this big interview that she did um, for some conference. And she just said, you know, the like the bell hooks that the bell hooks that got on stage with Janet Mock and like put herself out there. Cause like, I don't know if you followed bell hooks career, but it, you know, like I studied she, her in college. Yeah. yeah. I was like, obsessed with study um, swag. What is it? the department of women and gender so she was one of our like yeah pivotal characters in the program yeah but she's kind of like lived in this space of like feminist appreciation for a long time and like hasn't really stepped out in the public eye until previous you know previous years and really like that narrative has come forward for her and um 
that's just kind of what she was saying is that she was like, I have, I, the, the person who was living in fear would have never gotten on stage with someone like Janet Mock and like been in that space at all, because it was a space I didn't, I was uncomfortable being in and scared of, and it was outside of my comfort zone, but that's like necessary, right. For like learning more about life. Like you've got, you have to bring in new information. You have to navigate new spaces. You have to figure out how to push through things that happen to you. And so, yeah, like being in that brave space, I think is really important. And I do think that, um, I do think I've had to really learn that like there, that things are more complex and they're not binary or black and white and that it's very hard to live in that uncertain space. But if we can do it and still be healthy, um, then we should try. Mm-hmm. I think though that if you can't do it and be healthy, you've got to cut. You've got you do have to cut yourself off because our health is very important. Um, so yeah, it's like it's like yeah, it's hard. You, you know, because I'm not even going to say like oh, you know, everyone has to like live in this space of uncertainty because I actually don't believe that. I do think that like if you if you can't live a healthy life in that uncertainty, then you have every right to cut yourself off from those experiences and to, um, cut yourself off from relationships and things like that. Like we don't owe people, um, we don't owe people our bravery all the time. Like we don't have to, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're reaching not just with boss babes, but I think in general, with just like who you are, you reach a lot of minorities and, um, disadvantaged communities. How do you, as as you said, a white middle class. Yeah. So how do you advocate for these people without coming off as a savior? Like I think of, um, blind side, is it blind side or like the help, like these movies where a lot of people of color roll their eyes. Like we can't be helped unless there's a white person involved, you know? Um, and so I don't see you that way at all. How did you do that, though? Well, some people do see me that way. And I think that's important to recognize is that, like, some people do see me that way and probably for good reason. Um, Which, again, as I think the, like, not sitting in this binary and, like, recognizing that, like, on the basis of on the basis of me being born white into the family that I was born into, into the cultural context that I was born into, which is like, I was the only white person growing up from like kindergarten to senior year that like, yes, it's a very unique perspective, but it does not excuse me from, because you grew up on the border. Yeah. Okay. In a, Just to in, clarify. Yeah. And until I moved away, did not realize I grew up in the, one of the poorest towns in America, like had no idea. Right. And, um, I just think it provides me with a unique perspective, but it does not excuse me from anything at all. Like, um, I still, I still have privilege. I still have like, I still have, I still participate in systems that are performed, that are informed by racism. I still have socialization that like, and ways of thinking that are informed by my whiteness and by that context. So I think like, I have to sit in that very real space of recognizing that like there are certain times when I need to shut up and and sit down and that I cannot pretend one thing I'm really big on. um, One thing I'm really big on as an, as a survivor is that no one, no one is owed your trauma. Right. And I do feel like um, it is very, very easy for, for white people who desire to be allies to co-opt 
other people's trauma. And I can definitely tell you that like I have done that over the years. And so that's why I know it's very easy to do that, even if you're well-intentioned. Um, so that's like a big boundary I set now is that like, I cannot co-opt someone else's pain, someone else's trauma, someone else's like ancestral, like generational um, oppression. Like I cannot pretend to relate to that. I cannot pretend to be an expert on it. I cannot do any of those things. And there have been times where I did not even realize that I was putting myself in that space. Right. So I think just being honest about that is like a huge thing. Um, and, and learning from that. Yeah. So like, that's where I sit now. Um, um, I have, done extensive research on diverse and inclusive leadership practices and models. Um, when, when people talk about like anti-racism, it's not a concept. It's, it's a series of practices. It's policies, you know, it is, it is a political stance. It is a daily practice and daily learning. Right. Um, so is diversity and inclusivity. Um, it is a It is a lifestyle. It is, it's not like, and, and it's some, like, just like any lifestyle, you, you don't like reach a destination. You like live your life. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like you have to like live it every day. So I guess that's kind of where I stand is that like, there are many people who, um, who probably see me as some sort of like white feminist, like savior. And that's probably accurate to some degree. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just real. Like there have been there. It's probably accurate to some degree in different in different ways, depending upon how you're looking at my work. Whereas like there are other people who who have seen me like put myself, you know, like just redistribute my own power, which mm-hmm. and, and in those spaces, like people are like, yeah, I see you as an ally. But that's a that's a conversation I have to have with everyone every single day. And I have to look at my work in that lens every single day. And um, there are some there are going to be times where like I don't redistribute my power for lack of capacity, lack of like mental headspace or whatever. And so I think we just have to like be real about that. But that's something we all do as humans. You know what I mean? But I think when that human error is coupled with whiteness and privilege, it can really traumatize and hurt a lot of people, which is why obviously like anti-racism work is super important um, because just the spectrum of harm that can happen when you couple – simple human mistakes and error with unchecked power. Um, as we know, by watching how corporations have grown by watching like our current president, it has far reaches. So that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. yeah. So your creative uh, hard turn, hard right, <laughs> hard right turn. Uh, you're creative in so many ways. I want to talk more about, um, these other pools that you jump into. So can we call it consulting? You definitely do some of that. Um, and we were just talking about the business you were helping. Can you give advice? Like maybe this is too broad, but if a business is struggling, especially in the creative realm, um, and maybe also in like being transparent, like with Mm -hmm. branding and, Mm -hmm. and like finding a mission, what, what kind of advice, like maybe three pointers, would you give them? Yeah. Well, do you need more context? No, no, I I see what you're asking. So, well, I think like first, as far as like my, um, my creative work goes and like my like creative practice, as I say, um, 
is like I, you know, I'm an I'm a musician and artist. I'm a writer, right? And so that's led me on a lot of different paths. Um, but right now, like the lifestyle that I've designed for myself and the businesses I've designed for myself really revolve around having my like practice as a musician. So like being able to like make music, have collaborators, invest in my in my music, and then also like sustain and see Bosses ATX to a point of sustainability. So the only way I've been able to do that, um, I still donate half my salary to Boss Babes. Um, I'm not taking a full-time salary still. So like the only way I can do that, right, is like by finding income elsewhere. So um, with my like studio, I've designed different things based around my skills um, that I find a lot of joy in that don't that don't lead to burnout with like my other projects. And um, there are things that I'm like excited about and um, services I want to provide and are valuable. And so, um, as far as like working with other businesses and offering advice in that capacity, um, I, 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 that's like actually what I help people do (laughs) is like, I was just telling you before I came in, like helping people like redesign their practices and policies to better fit, better, better match, like where they are at scale. Um, you know, engaging in systems of accountability and feedback, um, creating experiences that authentically and transparently represent where the organization is at telling real stories. Um, a lot of that comes down to like being able to like tell someone, Hey, I think this is inauthentic. (laughs) We are all inauthentic sometimes. Right. So my advice, I guess, in that, um, in, in just like what I've been learning and doing this work, um, is like you really do have to be able to be honest about like where you're at, where your business is at, and look holistically at at your whole design, right? And then when you see flaws in it, own those flaws and and be like name those flaws. Be like this is how these flaws perpetuate throughout the work that I'm trying to do. So I have this thing um, called the the self organized guide, and I've been um, developing it for about a year since I had that kind of like break in 2017, that was like September, 2017, where I was like, I just can't live this way anymore. Like I'm dying. Um, I went through a series of questions with myself, like, who are you? Where where do you come from? Um, what, what are the decisions that you're making? What are the things that you're, um, what, what are the things that you value? How do those values translate into the things you are doing? Um, where are your resources? Where are your needs? Um, what are, you know, how does that translate into, um, the decisions you make every day? So that's, I guess my advice around transparency is that it's very difficult to be transparent. Um, we don't always owe people transparency, especially with something that like, cause sometimes transparency and brutal honesty escalates, like escalates problems or, um, or paints an inaccurate picture, right? Um, so I, I think it's like we have to provide ourselves with a safe space to be transparent and like a brave space to be transparent. So is self-organized like a tool that you actually? Yeah, give it's, it's actually where a tool. Can it, where can you um, find it? Well, so I don't have it. It it it's a it's a thing I have to walk people through. So I don't have it as like a downloaded thing because I think it can be very overwhelming unless you have like some sort of person guiding you through it. But 
um, I will be licensing out the curriculum to Boss Babes um, pro bono. Um, we're basically, we'll have like a self-organized summit like twice a year. It'll be part of this like curriculum we're working on for like emerging artists and entrepreneurs. Um, and then I actually teach the workshop. So I like, I just did one at South Congress hotel. I'm going to go to a conference in, um, in Long Beach, like in May and do it. Um, people have been finding out about it. It's just like, it's providing yourself with a very clear space to look at your flaws and look at your assets and make decisions like you are not you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like you're looking at it from an outside perspective. So, um, yeah, I guess that's, that's like my advice is like giving yourself the space to do that and recognizing that like, um, you can't do that all of the time and be transparent all of the time, um, with yourself or like you will kind of like frighten yourself into never doing anything ever. Mm -hmm. Because if we're fully, if we're fully like, if we're always digging into the deep emotional work of our work every single day, that can be very exhausting. So yeah, my, my advice on that is like create a brave space for yourself to be transparent about your business and to look at how that transparency transla translates into like how you're transparent with your customers, how you're transparent with your collaborators. Um, when, when is transparency not necessary or maybe when would transparency like, further agitate a situation, like asking those questions too, right? Because like, if you're running a team of 30, it might not be a good idea to be transparent every single day about how insecure you feel. And how, you know what I mean? It's like you've, there's a there's some boundaries we have to set with it. Yeah. And like determine where we feel comfortable. Yeah. So going into the musician realm, tell us about Sour Grapefruit and um what what is the meaning behind that song? Um, what does your music have anything to do with your journaling? What is what is the meaning? Like yeah, where, where does that come from? And is that where? And I don't know. Maybe this is a bad question because as someone who's passionate about many things, I don't know if I can choose. But is that a place where you feel most you? Yeah, I mean it is. I mean I've been a I've been a singer since. I could talk and then I've been writing songs since, like I said, like since I was seven. So like that is my primary tool of expression and like being human is like doing that through music and making music with other people and being around music, which I think is why I'm like drawn to festivals and I've been drawn to like creating spaces where people can share that and like whether they have, you know, like be multidisciplinary, right? Like I'm just really passionate about that and have been drawn to that, like this whole like festival community thing because I'm just very curious about other people who do that thing so yeah it, it's like my most authentic self I think like making music and writing um with, with Sour Grapefruit um I wrote the whole album I wrote the whole album about a year after um I started Boss Days ATX and which was about a year and a half out from the end of my really abusive relationship that I was referencing so if you kind of look at my timeline, that's like in the midway point between when I realized I was dealing with trauma. So the, the EP is very, it's very vulnerable. It's not necessarily like secure and confident. It brings up a lot of questions, a lot of things I was grappling with at the time. So like Sour Grapefruit, the actual song is like... <sighs> Thank you. 
it's it, it literally one of the lines it's like I'm a flower I'm trash and it's like that dichotomy that people it's like wondering what am I and can I be both right um and then recognizing that like you can't you can't be two extremes that it's more fluid than that right like it's more it's not binary in that way. Like just because you're not a flower sometimes does not mean you are trash. Like, I think like that's what the whole EP works through. And, um, the word, like the word sorry, grapefruit, um, grapefruit is like the, one of the primary crops grown in South Texas. And one of the things I've really struggled about, like in being from South Texas is that like, it is my context. It's like where I come from. And, um, grapefruit is they're, they're sour and, uh, I'm not always sweet. And that just, and just because I'm sour doesn't mean I can't be sweet or that I'm like bad. Right. Like it's okay. Like a sour grapefruit, like it should be sour cause it's a grapefruit and that's what makes it good. Right. So that's like where the inspiration comes from for that thing, for that like whole, I guess, like little, uh, story around the EP. Um, and I, I really like wanted to, um, be, I guess like claim my Texan-ness within it. Cause I've oftentimes in Austin just like felt like, well, I'm Texan too. And like, <laughs> and I hate these tacos. <laughs> I actually think that like tacos from the border are a lot better. Like, you know, like all these things we associate it with like Austin Texan-ness yeah. and like this whole idea of like, like white cowboy culture and stuff. Like, I think it's cool that like Solange is really owning that right now, which is like, I was so inspired when I saw Solange's album come out because I was like, yes, that's exactly like what I was trying to confront with sour grapefruit is like, there are so many ways to be Texan and we get fed like all these narratives about what being Texan is. And like, honestly, like Texas is, Texas is a really cool and vibrant and interesting state and um, it has a lot to love whether it's like the flora or like having like grapefruit crop in South Texas or whatever and so I kind of saw that dichotomy there too where like um, people try to keep it at like this one extreme and if it's not that then it's not Texan I'm like that's not true you know so the whole EP is just about those different themes and um, you know you can't be too much and not enough. Like you're probably somewhere in between and like in some places, maybe you are too much and in some places, maybe you aren't enough or whatever, you know, but, but you're probably okay overall. And, and that your flaws, even if they exist, like they're good. Like it's good that a grapefruit is sour, you know? Yeah. That's really deep. (laughs) Yeah, it is really deep. And actually like, it's been kind of hard talking about the EP because I think the themes can be very like internal for people listening and it's just like a very powerful statement to make with my first EP coming out but it it's it's just like the only statement that I could make it's like the work I, it's just like what I've been writing it's the right? diving board so, yeah. yeah I mean if they don't yeah it's, it's the like diving. the e, like the EP that I'm writing right now I have like I'm working on a couple new things like the songs are all about like falling in love and loving yourself and all sorts of so it's kind of like the follow-up to like this place of like am I a flower am I a trash I don't know like what's going on um and now it's like no like this is like like really honoring yourself and being in that space so yeah it's it's been interesting having that work out and 
and also looking at it for what it is and where and how I wrote it and where it was and where I was in my life when I wrote it too. Yeah. Um, oh, but from the journaling side. Yeah. So it took a really long time to make the EP just because I had some production issues. Um, but I wrote a whole poetry book while I was doing that because that is something that like I have to do. I have to write down like thoughts in order to get them out. So there's like a whole zine of poetry um, that is also titled Sour Grapefruit. It's like the accompanying zine. And um, that is also how I kind of like made the EP and really settled into my thoughts with it is like I wrote a lot of different things and then I took pieces of that for different songs and then everything else like kind of became these little poems. So it was like this broader thing I was writing, you know, at that time. So this, yeah. this question might sound ignorant. So if it does, just check me. <laughs> but would you say that your preferred medium is word based or music based? It's word based. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's word based. It's actually something that my my current collaborator, his name's Butcher Bear, and he he's been a huge part of my like healing journey too because he's really held space for me um, as an artist and like looked at me as an artist, which I think, gosh, it feels great to be seen right by people you care about in the way you want to be seen. So, yeah, and to be called an artist and not a creative, which I think yeah, there, and like you're an artist be, and yeah. you're like emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like a creative, I think it, it is like a bit more commercial in the sense that like you could do a lot of things because you're creative, right? So like I'm a, a multidisciplinary creative in the sense that like I've got a studio, I have a nonprofit project or whatever, but I am also an artist, even though I didn't go to school for it. And like I didn't like, I am an artist and like I process the world in a very artistic and like internal way. Same. (laughs) Yeah. And so he's like really held space for me in that, in that capacity. But we talk about this often because he does, he's not a lyricist at all. And, and, um, he's like, you are a poet first. And he's like, and you are blessed with, a with a, with a passion for um, musical storytelling. And he's like, but you are a storyteller first. Um, He was like, it comes, he's like, that's like your entire process top to bottom, which is interesting because some, some writers and some, you know, musicians are, are musicians first. They're not writers first. Right. So they might struggle with the lyric part of something, but the melody comes really easy. Whereas for me, it's like the words are, are there first. And I actually like write a lot of different phrases and different things down. And then at some point I start singing them based on like, oops, instrumentals I'm working with or stuff like that. It is a different process, but yeah, uh, totally a wordsmith first so that's a great question because I think like how people make music no one knows everyone's like I don't understand like um and different people have different processes which is super cool because yeah yeah it's just like humans are so like what I know fascinating (laughs) where do you get inspiration where do you derive like do you read do you listen to podcasts do you go on walks (laughs) all of the above what do you do well you take baths (laughs) yeah well so my actual process for inspiration I think there's like a lot of people that are like oh social media is my inspiration I like stay on Instagram or whatever it's that's actually like a really big drain for me I cannot be on it too long or I get in my head and I get really self-critical and like I get into like a culture of comparison and then I find myself like being petty in my mind against like people I really like and I'm like what is going on right like what um so uh I've had to really I've had to be very clear like in my practice as an artist like with where my inspiration comes from and um and how I pursue it right so I read every day for about an hour um and my 
uh, my reading varies. Like typically it's like, uh, typically it's like, like I read this blog every day called the creative independent. I talk about it all the time. I love that blog. I think it's awesome. Um, and I get a lot of inspiration from that, but like sometime, like I read, like I've been reading Michelle Obama's memoir for like a really long time. Like that's been inspiring in some ways. I've been gathering a lot of info from that. Um, I read like, um, I read a few different blogs around like mental models and, um, I also like actively research my industry and my field. So I do a lot of interviews with creative entrepreneurs for my Forbes column. Mm. Um, and I get a lot of inspiration there because I get to ask people questions and then I have to like sit down and like think about the things they've shared with me and then synthesize that. Right. And so, um, th- those are actually like my main forms of inspiration. Um, I try not to, uh, like just consume everything, you know? And like get inspired that way. Cause you can get inspired that way. But I think that like, if we kind of, if we get inspired on like a really surface level all the time, like we don't understand the context of something and it lends us to like being inspired by something, um, that doesn't honor the thing that's inspired us. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Cause like we don't, we don't really know its value. Mm-hmm. So then we're just like, we're like, paying homage to this thing that's like informed us in some way, but we don't even understand its context or like where it comes from. You know what I mean? Yeah. And also how can you make stuff when you're constantly consuming? Like how can you make it your own? Yeah. I think there's something to be said for that. Like I, I'm really attracted to um, like self help, self inspiration um, hacks and tips and you know, like how I built this and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes I think, okay, I need to take a break. Like, I need to go figure it out on my own and, yeah. and derive inspiration from myself and from sitting in silence, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you can definitely inundate yourself. So, I yeah. think that's well said. Well, and I think, like, as a white person, like, I think, like, white people, um, myself included, I'm not excluding myself from that descriptor, like, um, we claim a lot of things that like we're inspired by a lot of different people. Um, and really like, it's not inspiration cause we're not paying homage to like where these things have come from. We're like colonizing mm-hmm. other people's ideas. Um, and even if that doesn't end up having like, perpe- like real tangible harm, I think it has cultural harm. Um, so yeah, I'm really careful about how I get inspired because there's been times where like, I didn't fully understand something that inspired me. And then I like repeated that back out into the world and put like work out into the world that reflected that. And it was completely inappropriate for the thing that inspired Mm. me. So I don't think that applies to everyone. Yeah. I talk about ownership, (laughs) but yeah, but like, I do think that like we're, we are responsible for the things that, that we take inspiration from and we have to be careful about like how we consume those things and how we honor them. Cause like, it's also like on the flip side, like I've had people be inspired by my work and completely rip me off Mm. and that sucks, you know? So we have to be, and we have to be careful when we're like doing that to other people. So I'm very conscious conscious of that like when I am taking inspiration from others or like consuming things I'm like I really have to like if this inspires me this much I have to be I have to be committed to this <laughs> this like moment of inspiration and like really see it through um and like honor like other people's contributions within that space which is very hard I mean like I'm not perfect I'm, I'm not like I wouldn't even say I'm remotely good at that I think it's just like something I'm realizing with like 
um, how I'm approaching inspiration now is that um, social media is actually like not a good place for me yeah. to get inspiration. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, we like, at least for me, like before I realized that about myself, I put a lot of pressure on myself to find inspiration there. And um, some people do, but I actually don't like at all, yeah. like at all. And um, yeah, that it just, like it's been a real big shift and since like this big moment I had in 2017 where I was like, I have to figure all this stuff out or I might like, I might not exist anymore. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Well, I'm glad but, you're yeah. existing. I know. I'm, I'm glad, glad I like moved past that breaking point. I don't mean that like in a dire way. No, I just mean I like, I was like, I'm yeah. going to give up on everything. Yeah. Like, move back home. Like that's yeah. like where I was at. Wow. But, yeah. Well, you have thrived. <laughs> um, yeah. So first, before I wrap up with my yeah. last question, is there anything else that you want to expand on or I don't know whether it's a thought or a project or something you want to share? Yeah, I think it's just as as artists who create things and make things and then as like business owners and creatives who have to like find sustainable ways of living, right? Like whether that's paying our bills or like not burning out or any of those things. I think like for anyone listening who's really struggling with that dichotomy, right? They're like of like, okay, I really want to like express myself and collaborate with people on things, but I don't have the resources and I have all of this going on or I no longer have the time. I think I just want to like normalize that, that those things kind of always exist in attention. And sometimes we feel better about it. And sometimes we don't. And sometimes people are mad at us because, you know, you have to make a hard decision based on like, like with artistic projects, like it's so like, imagine if we all had the money that we needed to do the kind of work we want to do. Right. Like, oh, I imagine that all the time. I'm like, damn, like, what would it be like if I had a million dollars to do this thing? Then I wouldn't have all these problems. Then I wouldn't have all these problems. Like I have all these, we have all these things, right? Like, I think it's just recognizing that like, we can still make good work within our constraints. And just because we've um, we don't have the things that we need yet, or like we are, you know, we are facing very significant barriers because I do think that like as non-male people, and especially for like anyone who's experiencing like forms of racism or ableism, which is something we all do societally to each other, like no one's exempt. Um, not that reverse racism is real. That's not what I meant. I just meant that like, even if you're a well-intentioned person, you're participating in systems of that. It's just like, like we, we just have to recognize that like that just because those constraints exist does not make our work not valuable or that we can't be proud of it, you know? Cause yeah. I think that's like what I was trying to say about like living in that fluid space where like you're not one extreme or the other. It's like recognizing that there is a conflict and a tension between making art and working with other people and being in community while also surviving. Yeah under capitalism which mm -hmm. is just a very real thing you know and um I just think it's so hard for us to like to feel good about that some days and you know sometimes it comes more easy especially if you've had a lot of success and maybe you you are like surviving in a in a healthier way so you're like I can do all the things I want to do but then we have those moments and those those ebbs where it's like oh dang <laughs> like this is really hard right now I don't know how I'm gonna get through it and I don't know where I'm gonna go and I don't know if I'm doing this work in the way it needs to be done and why me and um, if not me, who Well, maybe not me, you know, just all those questions. Like we have to like, 
we have to just recognize that like those are questions we all ask ourselves and that we're not, you know, we're not, not worthy because we're asking those questions or because we're not feeling confident or because someone said something that made us feel insecure. Like that's a super hard truth to hold on to when things are wild or wacky or we're in seasons of growth. But yeah, for anyone listening who's like in that tense phase, I think that's my like core message is like everyone has conflict and tension in their lives and constraints and barriers. And it does not make those things right or good because they exist, but like it does not make you bad, you know, just Mm -hmm. because those things are not recognizing you or whatever. And, um, yeah, it's just like my thing, I think, right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. It reminds me of your t-shirt. It's like life's a spectrum yeah, baby. Life's yeah, life's a spectrum baby. I think it, like this is like since I had that moment in 2017, like I think that's like been my like path of like discovery right now. Like that's the phase I'm in is like realizing that like there aren't these binaries and these extremes. There are things that like those extremes exist for sure. But like most of life is in that in between. And um, that's where the complexity comes into play. And the complexity is like really, really cool, but really frightening. Mm -hmm. Okay. Last question. And it's kind of existential. I'm just warning you. (laughs) Um, In regards to identity. Yeah. If I asked you, who are you? And you responded with, I am blank. Mm-hmm. Uh, the blank can be a few sentences. It doesn't have to be just one sentence. Yeah. I mean, I am an artist who is learning. I think it's as simple as that. Um, and I actually even feel like that word artist could be just interchangeable with, with any descriptor I put upon myself. It's like at the core of it, I am just someone who is learning, you know, um, and unsure about so many things, but like, that's, that's like who I am. Um, and I, yeah, I've like confidently stepping into that is cool. So yeah, I am learning. That's, that's what it is. Beautiful. Thank (laughs) Thank you you. so much for joining me in conversation. That's real and vulnerable and all wonderfully you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And also, um, yeah, I just, I think the fact that like all of your questions have just been so, um, so like forward and thoughtful and, um, vulnerable and transparent Mm -hmm. and like just have created the space for me to also be those things. So yeah, thank you. Okay, she has one more thing to say, and it's really good. So this is, I know yeah. it's random, but it's got to be said. Yeah, um, just reflecting on, like, being, um, I was just telling Riley after the recording stopped, like, reflecting on, like, like how I've been very honest in this podcast about my imperfections that, like, just because we are honest about our imperfections does not justify the existence of those imperfections. It doesn't absolve us from, from having them. There's a responsibility there. So boom. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. You can connect with us on Instagram at woke beauty or me at Riley blanks and learn more at wokebeauty.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple podcasts. It helps a lot. Until next time, have a beautiful day, even if it's not that beautiful.